Genesis 28. And uh, last week, uh, Kyle took us back to James chapter 5, and uh, he is almost done that series in James now. This week, we jump back into our series called Looking to Jesus, and uh, we are taking all of 2018 and going through the Bible from start to finish, obviously not preaching every verse and every passage, uh, but instead stopping along the way and spending some time hitting some key themes and key passages throughout the Bible. And I hope that we're seeing already through this series that the story of the Bible is actually one simple story, that for all of the real-life incidents that we read of in the Bible, it tells one simple greater story, which is the story of redemption. It's the story of God's love for you and for me and for all people. And that story is most clearly told as we look at the cross upon which Jesus Christ died. That Jesus came and he lived the life that we could not live and he died the death that we should have died. And, and we look at that and we see this one greater story that spreads all the way across God's word. And so for us as a church and for our small groups in particular, 2018 has been a year of tracing the story of our Savior from Genesis to Revelation. And today, by no accident, we believe, we find ourselves in Genesis 28. Now, if you've been tracking with us through this series, I can understand how you might be opening your Bible to Genesis 28 right now with a little bit of hesitation because you're sitting here maybe and you're among those who are like crunching the numbers. And it's like, you're like, it's March. <coughs> and we are still in Genesis. And, and we've barely made our way halfway through the book of Genesis and there's like 65 books of the Bible still to go and you want to be at the end of the Bible by the end of the year and it's March and you can't believe it and I kind of can't either but we said it earlier in our series and I'll say it again this morning that we are intentionally spending a little bit more time here at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis because it's been said that if you don't really understand what happens in the beginning in Genesis, then you have a little bit more difficulty understanding some of what happens later on in the Bible that God unfolds for us and unpacks as we see this story of redemption. And so on purpose, by intention, we're spending a little bit more time in the book of Genesis than we will in any other Bible book through the course of this series uh, trusting that God will show us everything that we need to see. So as we get into God's word this morning, just consider for a minute a little bit of what we have seen so far in this series. We have seen the heights of God's glory in creation. We have seen the depths of our own sin and the power of God's saving promise. We have seen the love of God's heart that he would set aside a people for himself and those people then would spread blessing to all of those around him and and we have seen the, the power of God's provision. And today we see the assurance of God's grace. We see, we see the assurance that God's grace provides. And that's the big idea that we're going for today. God's grace is for everyone. And that gives us great assurance. God's grace is for everyone. And that gives us great assurance. Now, by way of context, let me uh, paint a little bit of the picture of some things that have happened uh, since we were in this series last. We left off a few weeks ago in Genesis 22, where Abraham was called by God to sacrifice his only son, whom he loves. His name was Isaac. And just as Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, God steps in at the very last second and tells Isaac to, or Abraham to stop. And God has provided a ram. He has provided a substitute who will die in Isaac's place. Since then, much has happened. Abraham has died. Abraham, uh, Isaac has grown up and he has married a girl named Rebekah and Isaac and Rebekah together have had twin boys whose names are Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older, he was the first to be born, but as he was being born, his twin brother Jacob was clutching onto his heel. And that's what Jacob's name literally means. He's a heel grabber, but his name also has a, a double meaning in that it means deceiver. So Jacob would be known as a deceiver for all of his life. But as he's being born, he's clutching on to Esau's heel, which then was a prophetic indication of the struggle that would develop between Jacob and Esau and all of their descendants after them. Fast forward now a bunch of years. Jacob and Esau are grown up. One day Esau is out hunting in the field because of the twin boys. That's what he does. He's kind of the man's man. He's out in the field hunting and he comes home exhausted after a long day and he begs Jacob for some of the stew that Jacob is cooking. Now Jacob, being the schemer that he has always been, knows an opportunity when he sees it. 
And in a way that only brothers can do, he tells Esau that if he's so hungry, he needs to give Jacob the birthright, and then he can have some lunch. Now, the birthright was a very big deal because the birthright is what entitled the oldest son within the family to a double portion of his father's inheritance when his father died. Apparently, Esau was so hungry in this moment that he feels like he's going to die anyway, and so he hands it all over to Jacob for a bowl of thick and chunky, and Esau sits down, and he has this bowl of soup, and the tragedy in the whole thing is that Esau seems to walk away at the end of it, not even realizing the severity of what he has just done. Fast forward again, Isaac now is in his later years, and he wants to bless Esau, his oldest son, who, by the way, was daddy's favorite. And so he sends Esau out hunting so that Esau can come back and then they can have this big meal together where Isaac then would pass on his blessing to Esau as the oldest son. So Esau leaves, not realizing that his mother, Rebekah, has been listening to the entire conversation. Now, where Esau is daddy's favorite, Jacob is a mama's boy. So Rebekah works with Jacob to convince Isaac to give the blessing to Jacob instead of to Esau. So Jacob and Rebekah put together this elaborate plan and essentially deceive Isaac, who at this point in his life is blind and he's not able to tell the difference between his two boys. And they deceive Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob, the younger brother, instead of to Esau, the older brother, who is entitled to it. And so when Jacob is asked later about this, he says, the Lord has given me this success. Basically, Jacob uses the name of God to validate the lie that he told his father in order to deceive him. Now, you know when you go to a restaurant and you see those two doors that swing open that go into the kitchen? And there's one door that swings open and it's the indoor into the kitchen. And then there's the other door right beside it that swings out and it's the outdoor. You know what I'm talking about? That's kind of where Jacob and Esau are right now. Jacob has just received this blessing from his father, and he is walking through the outdoor. And just as he is doing that, his brother Esau is walking through the indoor. Esau is literally only minutes, maybe even only seconds, too late. And as he walks in, not realizing what has happened, Esau asks Isaac for the blessing. Isaac then tells Esau what has happened, that his younger brother Jacob has come in and deceived him and taken the blessing from him. And when that happens, Esau is furious. Isaac is devastated, and Jacob has escaped. In fact, let's let Genesis 27 tell the story for us. Genesis 27, verse 33. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then who hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then, to give you an idea of how steaming mad angry Esau is right now, skip down to Genesis 27 and verse 41. It says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. In other words, Esau is saying, It's not going to be too long from now that our dad Isaac is going to die, and when he dies, I'm going to make sure that Jacob dies right after him. Like This is one seriously dysfunctional family. And that brings us now to our passage in Genesis 28. Jacob has now been sent to stay with his uncle Laban to escape Esau's anger. And it's on his way there that God's grace meets him in an absolutely extraordinary way. And we see that the grace of God really is for everyone. So let's have our Bibles open. Genesis 28, starting at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. 
The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. It's really important that we see that Jacob is a powerful illustration of the two natures that are within every single one of us. On the one hand, there's the old nature of the flesh. And on the other hand, there's the new nature of life in the Spirit of God. And in our flesh, just like Jacob, we depend on our own plans, we depend on our own wisdom, we depend on our own resources and abilities to try and get us through the situations and the circumstances that we face every single day. And what I want you to see from this passage as we make our way through it this morning is that it's those very things... It's the dependence that we have on ourselves, and the dependence that we have on our own resources and on our own abilities. It's those very things that make this an equally powerful testimony to the reality that God's grace is for everyone. And Jacob was a deceiver. He was a manipulator. But the grace of God interrupted all of that, and just like it does for us, it brought about a new nature in Jacob to long for the things that only God was able to give him. I think the challenge for us is that if we are honest with each other, if we are honest with ourselves, the sin of our past and even the sin of our present can sometimes make us wonder if God's grace has really changed us in the ways that we think it has. That if we're honest with each other, sometimes we're not sure. Like we know that God is gracious, right? We know that God is merciful and God is kind and he is loving and he is compassionate, but sometimes the old nature rages so hard and so deep within every single one of us that it makes us wonder if God's grace has really made a difference in the way that we live like we think it has. So here's what we need to wrestle with this morning. If God's grace is for everyone, if God's grace is for you and if it's for me and if it's for us every single day, then how can I know that God's grace is at work in me? I want to show you three specific ways from this passage to help us know that God's grace is at work within our lives. Here's the first. You know God's grace is at work in you when you realize that you don't deserve it. When you realize that you don't deserve it. Notice again the ordinariness of verses 10 and 11. Genesis 28 verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, the journey from Beersheba, where Jacob was with his family, to Haran, the place that he was sent to be with his uncle Laban in order to escape Esau's anger, that's a journey of about 500 miles. So with his caravan, that probably would have taken Jacob upwards of a month just to walk there. But think for a minute of some of the key things that have happened in Jacob's life up to this point that have brought him to this place. He's stolen from his brother. He's plotted with his mother. He has deceived his father. He's cheated his brother again. I mean, he has burned every family bridge that he has. And I wonder if there could be some of us in the room and you see some of your life wrapped up in some of the life of Jacob. In fact, there could be three different scenarios that are playing themselves out right now across this room. Some of you could be living a life of deception. 
Maybe it started out with something small, but then it grew into something bigger, and now it's come to the point, sadly, where that is all that you know. And that could play itself out in a variety of ways. You'll do whatever you need to do in order to make the extra money. You'll do whatever you need to do in order to get ahead of the competition. You will be absolutely ruthless in order to get people to hold a certain perception of you. You're willing to cross lines and overlook boundaries for the sake of getting something that you think you need. And what started out as so small such a long time ago has turned into something so big today that you're not sure you could turn it around even if you wanted to. For some of us, the deception doesn't happen so much just in the workplace. Deception has become your way of life. And so that small lie snowballs into a bigger lie. And before you know it, that snowball turns into a snowman because all of those smaller lies start getting packed together and then you start dressing it up on the outside to make it look like something that it's really not. And then it keeps going on and on and on. And before you can even catch up, this snowman has turned into a complete avalanche of deception. Still for others, the deception is that you're coddling secret sin. And that could be dozens of different things. Lust, pornography, anger, bitterness, resentment, fear, doubt, greed, jealousy, theft, covetousness, foolish talk that comes out of our mouth according to Ephesians 5, sexual immorality. I mean, could it be that there is someone here right now and you are so caught up in this private secret sin that you stand on the brink of destroying your marriage or destroying someone else's marriage or destroying the potential of your future marriage? Could it be that that someone here is so caught up in this private secret sin that you stand on the brink of destroying your family or destroying someone else's family because you are not willing to stop living the lie? I mean, just stop long enough to consider that there is no way that a life of deception will not eventually wreak havoc on the people that are closest to you and that you love the most. It is foolishness to think that your secret sin will not impact your marriage just because your spouse doesn't know about it. It is insanity to think that a little glance here or there or a little white lie every once in a while is not really that big of a deal. Loved ones, stop and look at this. Look at Jacob long enough to understand that he is leaving his family in the wake of his own deceit and sinfulness. Not to mention how massive of an offense that these things are against a holy and righteous God. We need to understand that this is a very big deal. For others, it's not deception so much as you find yourself running from the decisions of your past. And that's what Jacob's doing here in verses 10 and 11, right? He lived his life his own way for so long and he rode that train all the way to the end of the tracks and now, almost literally, he's trying to get as far away as he possibly can from the sins of his past. And I can hear some of you sitting here right now and saying to yourself, well, isn't that what we should do? I mean, shouldn't we be running as fast as we can and as far away as we can from the sins of our past? Yes, absolutely, Run as fast as you can. Get as far away as you possibly can. The problem here is that Jacob is running in the wrong direction. He's running to the wrong place. More specifically, he's running to the wrong person. And we know this, don't we? The solution is not simply running away from the problem because the problem has a way of running just as fast as we can and ends up meeting us in whatever place we end up going to. 
And even as we do that, there's a third kind of scenario that plays itself out as well. You could be at a place right now where you feel like the sin and the brokenness has become so deeply ingrained in who you are and what you do that you feel as though you are beyond the reach of God's grace. You feel forsaken by God. It reminds me of when I first started pastoring at my first church and first guy that I led to the Lord in that church, and, and he was, um, he had chosen a certain lifestyle for himself, and he had plunged himself into that lifestyle every opportunity that he got. The problem was that lifestyle brought with it a bunch of extracurricular activities that were not good for him. Ended up leading to addictions to drugs, addictions to alcohol, led him to relationships with people that were not healthy for him, and then one day his best friend ended up getting into a motorbiking accident that was so bad that his friend lost control of his motorbike, slammed his head into a cement wall. He was in a coma for almost a week, and then eventually he died. Just a few months before he had died, he had given his life to the Lord. And I had the privilege of doing that funeral. And I was talking to this guy about his friend who had just died just a little while after the funeral. And and was telling him that he could have the same kind of relationship with Jesus that his friend had had before he died. And, and he looked back at me and he said, no way. Like, there's just no way that I could ever have that kind of relationship with Jesus that you're telling me about right now. Because if you knew half the things that I've done through the course of my life, you would understand that there is no possible way that God could show me that kind of grace and Jesus could show me that kind of love. Just no way it's ever going to happen. His entire identity was wrapped up in the sin of his past. It was wrapped up in the sin of his present. It was even wrapped up in the sin that he felt he was doomed to commit in the future. When you think about it, that's Jacob. That's exactly where Jacob is right now, which when you think about it even further, it makes the reality of God's grace all the more amazing. So come back to the text now. Look at, look at this text and notice how many times that this passage mentions this place. It says this place or that place or a certain place. You can underline it or circle it in your Bible to make it stick out, but look at how many times it refers to this place. Follow with me. Genesis 28, verse 11. And he came to a certain place. There it is. And stayed there that night. Later in verse 11. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Skip down to verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Verse 17, And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. Verse 19, He called the name of that place Bethel. So just six times right here in this passage, it refers to this place, that place, a certain place, which when you think about it, this was an extremely ordinary place. Right? Like Jacob is leaving where he was, going to where he was going. It's a long journey along the way. All of a sudden, the sun goes down. It gets dark. It's time for him to sleep. So he pulls over a rock for a pillow, and he falls asleep. There is nothing special to him in that moment about that place. And yet, that was when God met him in that place and would begin this process within his life to change him forever. So loved ones, can I encourage you right now to look back to that place in your life where God came to you for the first time with his grace and began this process that would change your life forever. Look back to that place, wherever that is, where his grace became so real to you and he opened your eyes to the sinful and broken mess that we all are apart from him and to the reality that Jesus is the only one who can cover over that sinful and broken mess with his perfect righteousness. Like look back to that place where everything changed in a moment where you least expected it, where you were not even looking for it. Look back to that place and let that fill your heart with such gratitude that it compels you to turn away from your sin, to turn away from the deception. And to start running to him. Look back to that place in your life, whatever that place is. 
And I would encourage you even, once you look back at that place where the first time God's grace met you, then look back to all of the places where God has met you since then and he's poured out your grace upon you, like place after place after place after place, right? Because we all have them. It's not just that one moment where God pours out his grace on us and saves us. He pours out his grace on us continually, day after day. Look back to those other places, those big moments in your life where God pours out his grace upon you. Like stay-at-home moms, homeschooling moms, like, like think moms with little kids, like you're changing diapers and you're feeding babies and then they throw up on you as a thank you. Like, that's great. Like, bless you. Thank you for doing that. But, but like in those moments where it's like, why is this happening? Just call out to God in his grace. Just plead with God for his grace. And he gives it to you. And dads, you go to work day after day and maybe you're stuck in a job that you don't like and, or maybe you're in a job that you're okay with but it's the same thing day after day, week after week, year after year. You're just doing it over and over and over again so you can put food on your table and clothes on your kids' backs and take care of your family and, and just in those moments, just call out to God for his grace and he gives it to you. Students, you're going to class, you're going to school every day and you walk into your classroom and you're surrounded by other students, surrounded by your peers and, and you're the only one who believes what you believe and you want to passionately live your life for Jesus Christ but none of your friends believe the same thing that you do. In that moment, just call out to God for his grace. God, I want to live my life faithfully for you and he gives you grace. Maybe you're going through a health difficulty in your life right now and it's been like this for a little while and you thought you were past this but now it's back and you don't know what to do you don't know when the answers are going to come you don't know how it's going to change things in the future and just call out to God for his grace in that moment and God gives you grace maybe you're just stuck in the ordinary things of life that happen day after day after day after day and even in that Call out to God in his grace, and he pours out his grace upon us. His grace is sufficient. Could be that you're living a lie, or that you're stuck in the mire of your past, that you don't see a lot of hope for your future. Maybe you came to church this morning not really expecting anything out of the ordinary to happen, but maybe the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you right now about some very specific things within your life and in a way that you did not see coming, this is turning into that place for you. This is turning into that place where God right now is pouring out his grace upon you, even though there's not a single one of us in this room who deserve any of it. And loved ones, as God pours out his grace upon you, I plead with you right now, do not turn away from him. Turn to him, run to him, plead with him for his grace. Reminds me of the old hymn that we all know, written by John Newton so many years ago, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I see that God's grace is at work in me when I realize that I don't deserve it, which brings us then to this second observation. You know God's grace is at work in you when you realize that you can only receive it. So two ways you know so far that God's grace is at work in your life. You realize you have come to this heart-level understanding that you don't deserve it and you can only receive it. Now, I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I have some pretty vivid dreams, but never anything like what we read next. Take a look at verse 12. And Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like to have a dream like that? So he's dreaming of this ladder that starts where he is and it reaches all the way up into the heavens. And if that's not spectacular enough, the angels of God are going up and down. They're going back and forth on this ladder, coming down from heaven to the earth to do the work of God and then going back up this ladder again 
And standing over all of that is the Lord himself who is now speaking to Jacob and God affirms for Jacob the promise that he's already made to Abraham back in chapters 12 and 15 and that he's made to Isaac back in chapter 26. But what I want you to notice here is that God is the one who initiates this. God is the one who starts this. Jacob did not build this ladder up into the heavens. Neither did Jacob stand up an already existing ladder that he thought might reach into the heavens. God initiates this. So in some very real sense, this is not Jacob's ladder that reaches up into heaven. This is God's ladder that comes down to the earth. God is the one who comes to Jacob. And all of this stands in very stark contrast to what the people tried to do back in chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. You remember that? So the Tower of Babel, they're building this tower that reaches up into the heavens. And the whole reason they did this was because they wanted to prove their independence from God. They're basically building this tower and saying, God, we don't need you. Like, God, we got this covered. We've got a way to get us from this earth up into heaven. So God, we're just going to do this our own way. And God sees this and he comes down and shuts them down in judgment. But here, God comes down to Jacob from heaven, and this time, he does not shut him down in judgment. Instead, he gives him grace. And he gives it to him in three very specific ways. Notice this, first of all. God shows grace through his presence. Through his presence. Notice verse 15. God says, Behold, I am with you. And then later in verse 15, For I will not leave you. Isn't that great? And this is the same promise that is given to you and to me in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So no matter the difficulty, no matter the pain, no matter how many times we forsake him by putting our hope in things that are not him, he will never leave us. If we are faithless, he is faithful for he cannot deny himself. That's grace, loved ones. He shows his grace through his presence, but then also, second, through his protection. Verse 15, again, he says, I will keep you wherever you go. So God says to him, I will watch over you. I will take care of you. I mean, that's an astounding promise from God that Jacob is on this journey and he doesn't know what this journey is going to involve. He doesn't know everything that's going to happen to him after this journey as a result of the promise that God is now making to him. God comes to him and says, I'll be with you wherever you go. I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. So no matter the evil that may befall you, no matter the circumstance that may threaten you, I will protect you, God says, wherever you go. It's the same promise that God made to the psalmist in Psalm 121, verse 7. He says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Like, don't miss this. This is the grace of God upon your life. He's protecting you. And then third, he shows his grace through his promise. Verse 15, again. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So if you read ahead in Genesis and you get to chapter 35, you see that God did, in fact, do for Jacob everything that he said that he would do. God was faithful to keep his promise. So God shows his grace through his presence, his protection, and his promise. And then notice how Jacob responds, verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So the house of God and the gate of heaven are both conveying the idea that God in his grace has come down to the earth. That the place where God is, is the place where heaven and earth are connected. And the only hope of getting into heaven is through this gate. So by now... I hope that you're starting to pull on some threads of the gospel that you see through this passage. At no point in this story has Jacob ever been pursuing God. You see that? He's not pursuing God. In spite of all of his sin and deceit and lying and manipulation, God is pursuing him. He's never been pursuing God, and that's the same that is true for us as well. Romans 3 says, no one is looking for God. Nobody looks for God. 
unless God first draws us. God is pursuing us. God here is pursuing Jacob, and God shows his grace to him in an absolutely profound way. Later in John chapter 1, Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael to follow him. And when Jesus shows Nathanael who he is, Jesus then says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So it's the same idea as Jacob's dream. In fact, Jesus is referencing Jacob's dream in Genesis 28 when he says this in John chapter 1. But with Jesus, there's no mention of a ladder. Instead, the angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man, who is Jesus. So, Jesus is saying to Philip and Nathaniel and to everybody who's sitting around them, and by extension, he's saying to us as well, I am the ladder that connects heaven and earth. And the only way, Jesus says, that you get from earth to heaven is through Jesus himself. Now, think about this. Every other major world religion that exists is built on the person. It is built on the worshiper doing everything that they possibly can to get from this earth to heaven. And so you need to do a lot of good works. And you need to make sure that you do more good works in this life before you die than you do bad works to make sure that you can get to heaven. You need to say certain prayers and you need to say them at certain times of the day and you need to confess your sins to somebody that you don't know and somebody who doesn't know you and you need to make a pilgrimage to a certain city that other people have deemed to be holy and you need to do all of these things and you need to follow all of these rules and keep all of these regulations and you need to do, 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 do in order to get from this earth to heaven. Everything is dependent on the person. It's dependent on the worshiper doing all that they can to get from earth to heaven. But the message of the gospel is that heaven has come to earth. That God, in the person of his only son, Jesus Christ, has come to be with us and he has taken the full judgment against our sins, against a holy God, upon himself and he has made a way for us to be with him in heaven forever. You could say that Jesus has descended from heaven to this earth, and he has lived the life that we could not live. He has died the death that we should have died. He has risen again to defeat sin and death forever, and then he has ascended into heaven so that by faith in him, when we die, we too will ascend this ladder into heaven, and we will be with him forever. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. We sing a song here called, What a Wonderful Name. And there's a line in that song that causes some questions as we sing it. The line goes like this. I'm not going to sing it for you, don't worry. It goes, you didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. And I can completely understand how that line might create some questions for some people because on some level, when you sing that line of that song, and if you take that line out of the context of that song, it could make it sound as though Jesus is needy. It could make it sound as though Jesus needs us for something, that something is lacking in Jesus, and the only way that Jesus becomes fulfilled and content is if in some way we are able to give him what he is lacking because we need to be with him in order to give it to him. It just makes it sound, G sound like Jesus is very needy. But the problem with all of that is that, does God need anything from us? Like, does Jesus need anything at all from us? Lift up your voice. Tell me, does Jesus need anything from us? No, he doesn't need anything. I mean, the answer is a resounding no. He doesn't need anything at all from us. We need everything from him. And so we sing this song, and at the same time, the message of the gospel is super clear. God glorifies himself in sending his only son from the glory of heaven as the one who makes the way for us to be with him forever. So does Jesus want us to be with him forever? Yes, absolutely, he wants us to be with him forever. That's why he's gone to prepare a place for us that, that uh, where I am, Jesus says, you may be also. He wills that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So yes, Jesus doesn't want heaven without us, but not because we can give him something that he does not yet have. He doesn't want heaven without us because that's how much he loved us. 
That's the story of the gospel. Jesus left the glory of heaven to come and live the life we couldn't live, die the death that we should have died, so that by faith in him, we will be with him forever. I mean, let's be super, super clear on this, okay? The gospel is that Jesus is the only way and the only truth and the only life, and there is no other way to the Father except through him. That the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. That there is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. There is no other way. That is the message of the gospel. So, back to Jacob. Notice what happens when he realizes how gracious God has been to him. Verse 17. He was afraid. You see that? Like, this holy fear has overtaken him. It's actually the same response that Adam had back in Genesis 3 when his sin was discovered by God. Those sentences are structured in the very same way. Jacob is afraid now because his sin has been discovered by God and now he is in the presence of this holy God. What is God going to do to him now that his sin has been exposed? So now, think back for a minute to that place in your life. Think back to to that place for you, wherever that place was. Maybe it was you kneeling down beside your bed and, and praying to God to forgive you of your sins and for Jesus to be your Savior and you repented of your sins and turned away and, and committed to following him for the rest of your life. Maybe it was you sitting around a kitchen table with your mom or your dad or a friend and, and they led you to Christ. Maybe it was at, at a camp or uh, at a conference or wherever you may have been, but think back to that moment where God's grace became so real to you, where he showed you like you had never seen before that the gate, of, that the gate to heaven is not a ladder that reaches to the sky, but it's a cross that stands upon a hill. There is a holy fear that comes on us when our sin is exposed in the presence of a holy God. So, I ask you this morning, is there something that you are allowing into your life where you have lost the fear of being discovered by God? What are you holding on to? What are you hiding? What are you treasuring, hoping that no one else finds out? What are you hiding and not even realizing that God already knows? Loved ones, can I just say that if you are in a place in your life right now where the fear of your sin being discovered by God no longer matters to you, that is a dangerous place to be. And I plead with you right now in this moment where God is pouring down his grace upon us in this moment to turn to him Do not turn away from that grace. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And in grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. See, the great part about God's grace is that It's not just about looking back at the ways that we have failed. It's also about looking forward to God's future, which brings us to our final point this morning. You know God's grace is at work in you when you realize that you must be changed by it. So you know God's grace is at work in you when you realize you don't deserve it, you can only receive it, and now you must be changed by it. Notice this first. Jacob's first response is to acknowledge the presence and the awesomeness of God. That's verse 16. Now think about that. So much of what has come out of Jacob's mouth to this point in his life has been marked by lies and deceit and trickery and arrogance, very little about God. But now he has encountered the grace of God, and the first thing that he says is to acknowledge God's presence. There's a change that has happened. I love what Charles Spurgeon says, not necessarily about this passage, but it certainly applies here. Spurgeon says this, grace puts its hand on the boasting mouth and shuts it once for all. I love that because when you have truly encountered God's grace, 
you don't spend all your time talking about yourself anymore. Like when you've truly encountered his grace, you don't spend all your time trying to get your own way anymore. The boasting mouth is shut once for all. And then we see this in verse 18. So early in the morning. So stop there for a second. Verses 12 to 17 have happened in the middle of the night. So when Jacob wakes up in the morning, he responds immediately to what God has shown him. See, this right here is one of the greatest disciplines of the Christian life, to respond immediately to the things that God shows us. That when God teaches us something in our Bible reading or in a sermon or when God reveals something to us in prayer or when he helps us see something through an important conversation with someone in our small group or with a trusted friend, we respond right away to the change that the Lord wants to bring about within our life. Like I love standing up here at the end of a service every week and just being available for you to come up and to pray about things that are happening in your life. And sometimes as I'm standing up here and waiting for the next person to come, I just look out across this room and every once in a while I see little pockets of people that are gathered together and and you're sitting two and three people together and heads are bowed and eyes are closed and lips are moving and you're praying. And sometimes people are standing along the walls and there's smaller groups of people who are standing there and and you're just praying with one another. Heads are bowed and and you're seeking the Lord and I don't know what you're praying about and it's not important that I know, but for some of you, I know that you're taking that time and you're going before the Lord and you're asking God to help you apply to your heart with specific application the things that you have just learned in his word things that God has just shown you and you're asking him for his help to bring about the change in your life that he wants to bring about in you. One of the best ways that we can show gratitude in our lives to the Lord for the grace that he has given us is to respond immediately to the things that he is teaching us. That's what Jacob does here, verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. Bethel means the house of God, which is why Jacob says back in verse 17, this is none other than the house of God. Verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So Jacob makes this vow before God, and he seems to commit to follow God and to give a tithe of all that he has to God. It's important to understand here that Jacob is not bargaining with God. Okay, so when we hear Jacob say, if God does this and this and this for me, then I'll do that for God. He's not playing, let's make a deal. Right? He's not asking for whatever's behind door number two. For Jacob, this was the standard way that vows were established between two parties. In other words, a person did not make a vow with God to try to convince God to give them something that God previously did not want to give them. Okay, that's the difference between the covenants that we've seen up to this point because the vows were made by the person who was not only reiterating what God had just promised, but by making the vow, they were binding themselves to believe that God would do everything that he had just promised to do for them. So their life then was poured out as a response to the grace that God had just shown to them. And this, friends, this is the story of a life that has been changed by the gospel. I mean, the assurance that God is with us has to change us. Just think about this. God is with us. He's with us right now. You're going to go to work tomorrow and God is with you. You're going to go to school tomorrow and God is with you. You're going to go into a difficult conversation this week and God is with you. You're going to go to a doctor's appointment this week and God is with you. He has descended to be with us and we see this thread that spreads all the way across Scripture. Jacob will see it again twice in the book of Genesis in chapters 31 and 46 that God is with him. Number six, every time the priest pronounces the blessing on the people, it reminds the people that God is with them. Isaiah 41 and 43, the people are in exile in Babylon and they're fearful about their future and God comes to them and says repeatedly and and very clearly that he is with them and because of that they have nothing to fear. But then we fast forward all the way to this small smelly stable in Bethlehem with a young couple that nobody knows and they give birth to a little baby and they are to call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. 
Fast forward again to Matthew 28. Jesus commissions his disciples to take the gospel to the nations. And the very last words that Jesus says before he ascends into heaven is to look at his disciples and say, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. And now we live in that age and we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21 where Jesus says the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You need to hear this this morning. The heart of God for you is to be with you. The heart of God is to be with his people. And if we really believe that, then that has to change the way that we live our life. We need to see that our life is not about the never-ending accumulation of stuff. It's not about the endless pursuit of mindless entertainment. It's not about the incessant pursuit of individual satisfaction. Like if we really believe that God is with us, then it has to change the way that we see the world around us. That if tens of thousands of people across our city and across this country, if billions of people across the world are headed to a Christless eternity apart from receiving the good news of this gospel, then we need to realize that we have nothing to fear in taking that gospel to them because God is with us. The God of the universe is with us. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come was grace that brought us safe thus far. And grace will lead us home. Jacob's life from this point forward was far from perfect. He made some really bad decisions. He slipped back into some old ways. He showed that old habits really do die hard. But that's why it's called grace. And that's why grace is for everyone. Grace is not about trying harder. It's not about being better. It's not about being stronger. It's about receiving and resting in what God has done for us in Christ. You know, we've said this so many times before, and it's worth saying again. The grace that saves you is the grace that sustains you. The grace that God gave you at the moment of your salvation in that place, whatever that place was for you, is the same grace that keeps you close to him and makes you more like Jesus. J.I. Packer said it so well, and we close with this. I'm graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All of my knowledge of him depends on this, his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted for me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. God is the God of grace, and the grace of God is for everyone.